Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 735 with Chef Nina Compton. Like, well, I'm the chef owner here. I should get everything I want. And they're like, no, 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 no. This is this is the number here. And I think that's why a lot of people, when they open restaurants, they overspend. And and you're already in, you're already in the red to open a restaurant. And sometimes, like, it comes back to the menus. So you have to start off small and make some money and say, okay, now I can afford the cryovac machine. Now I can get this. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Find out why Toast POS is the number one recommended restaurant POS system on Restaurants Unstoppable. If you're going to survive this upcoming recession, you have got to adapt. And you can't just adapt. You have to adapt fast. With Toast's cloud-based restaurant POS, your system will update to evolve along with changing industry trends and guest expectations. To learn more, head over to toasttab.com slash unstoppable. And because you are restaurant unstoppable listeners, for a limited time, you will get one month free POS software, three months of free digital ordering tools, and 50% off implementation to ease the impact of COVID-19. This is a value of $1,000, but you've got to use our links. What is going on? Unstoppable. So we have a great show for you today, but you know what I'm going to say. I'm going to remind you to please use my link, toasttab.com slash unstoppable. That is the link you have to use to get the best deal out there, up to $2,000 worth of incentives. I don't know of anybody else offering um, such a great deal, but you, again, you have got to use that link and you cannot have made previous c- contact with Toast. So you have to be a, a, a cold lead, meaning you're not a warm lead. You weren't already talking to Toast. You have to be a cold lead. You have to use that link. It's not enough to say that you heard about Toast through Restaurant Unstoppable. And when you use that link, shoot me an email, eric at restaurantunstoppable.com, so I can make sure you get the best deal. All right. So with that said, I want to let you know we have Nina Compton on the show. She uh, is loved throughout the country and especially out there nor- uh, throughout New Orleans, where she's working. And we have some great uh, advice in today's chat. She talks a little bit about uh, focusing on the details being a collective process. The benefits of a small menu, specifically on your bottom line, uh, the benefits of opening a restaurant, a hotel, and some variables you should consider. And then also she wants to make sure you guys are heading over to saverestaurants.com to help with this COVID relief. And before we hit play on today's chat, I also want to remind you that starting next week. I can't believe it's already next week. We're going to start doing Restaurant Unstoppable live. So if you want to join these interviews live and ask your questions to my guests, and I'm going to be going back through my my network, connecting with the people who've made the biggest impact on me and doing deep dive conversations, workshops, if you will, on specific topics. And over the years, we're going to be rounding off and creating this content library of workshops and courses. And to access all that information, all those those archived workshops, you need to be a member of Restaurant Unstoppable Network. So head over to restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com and join the conversation. Be a part of my interviews. Literally, you can ask your own questions. So what are you waiting for? Get on it. Here's today's show. It's a good one. 
And with excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Chef Nina Compton. Are you feeling unstoppable, Chef? A little bit today. Little, yeah, <laughs> the pandemic you. has me down. I, I slowed us down, but I, I feel it has. Like, yeah, I, I feel like you are unstoppable for what it's I worth. I try. Um, <laughs> so, uh, hailing from the island of St. Lucia, Nina Compton is a graduate of the Culinary Institute of America, Hyde Park. She started her professional career working under the mentorship of Daniel Balud at his namesake restaurant, Danielle. Uh, Nina th- then moved to Miami, where she continued to work in leading restaurants and hotels, including Scott. Uh, Contents. Did I say that correctly? Conant. Oh, sorry. Conant <laughs> uh, Scarpetta, where she served as chef de cuisine after moving, or sorry, after being runner up on Top Chef season 11 and voted fan favorite, Nina moved to New Orleans to open her own restaurant. Uh, I'm, I know I'm going to destroy it, so I'm just going to let you say it. Capella Pen. The Capella <laughs> Pen. Thank you so much. In 2015. Uh, in 2018, Capella Pen was followed by Bywater American Bistro, which is where we're sitting today. It's a yes. gorgeous space, Thank by you. the way. Thank you. I love this space. Uh, I cannot wait to dive into your story to find out who you are and how you got to where you are today. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Positive vibes all around. Positive <laughs> vibes all around. Why does that resonate with you? Because it's important to set the tone in the kitchen. I think people want to feel positive, not yes. negative and bogged down. I think that also translates in people's cooking when they're talking to guests. Uh, I think that's really important to have that positivity and it just becomes contagious. So in times like today, yeah, with all that's going on in the world, where do you find your positivity? You know, it's sometimes you just have to step back and say some things I just can't control, yeah. you know, and I'm, I can control what I can. And that's my cooking in the kitchen. Mm. That's my recipes. That is... You know, what I put on the plate, I can control that. Everything else I can control. I can control what the state is doing, phase one, phase two, phase three. I can control. I can control anything else. So yeah. I can just do my little part in my little kitchen and do what I can. Yeah. I think it's important, too, to know that we get in our little bubble, right? And we're just like, oh, my God, my world is crumbling around. Right. And we forget that everyone's world is crumbling yes. around them. Yes. So it feels like a very isolated time. It feels like all we've, we've worked for is being lost. But when it's... But when everybody else is in that same exact state, it's terrible. Yeah, but you, you're also not losing anything because, like, you're right there next to everybody else. Right. I, know, we had um, we had our guy that checks the chemicals for our one of the companies, and he came and he's like, "Hey, chef, good morning. How are you?" And he just came. He's like, "You don't need any chemicals." And like, he just had like his shoulders slumped over <laughs> just because he didn't do, he didn't sell anything to yeah. me today. And he's just like, "Okay, I'll see you next week. Have a happy fourth." So it's on everybody's shoulders, yeah. you know, and it's um. I think during these times, I've become a, a lot closer to a lot of my chef friends, calling in and checking in, how are you doing? And it's just, everybody's in the same boat. It sucks right now. And I think that people really want to just vent, yeah, you know, and just, just let it all out. Because, you know, when you hold all these things in, it is a very, it's a terrible time to be a business owner right now um, because you're trying to f- navigate What's going on with this virus? You know, how it's impacting a business? Is your business going to stay open? So a lot of those things are constantly on your mind. And I, you could just looking around, you see so many restaurants and so many businesses just closed. And, you know, there's just no light. We're just like trying to figure this out each day. Yeah. Awesome way to get this thing started. Where does it make sense to start telling your story? When did you know that this was going to be your path? I was... You know, I, I always cooked with my mom um, and my grandmother in the kitchen. And 
I went to school in England for two years, and I came back because Christmas is a very big thing for us. Christmas is like the world stops when it's Christmas, yeah. And it's about cooking and celebration and family. And I said because I always, growing up, always watched my grandmother and my mom and my aunt. Everybody come to the house. All the women in the kitchen cooking. And they would spend hours in the kitchen and then hours after cleaning up. And I'm like, this is terrible. This sucks. <laughs> and I said one Christmas, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to cook Christmas dinner today. And they're like, what? I'm like, no, just sit back and I'll do everything. I'll do the dishes. I'll clean. I'll cook everything. And just seeing them happy and eating. I'm like, I told my mom, I'm like, I think I want to be a chef. She's like, why do you want to be a chef? She's like, it's stressful. It's no money. You're going to be working holidays. She and wasn't I'm, wrong. She wasn't <laughs> wrong. And she... You know, she's like, if you really want to do that, you need to go work at a hotel or restaurant and really figure this out because yeah. I don't want you to say you want to do this and then hop in, hop out. She's That's like, great advice, by the way. Yeah. So thanks to my mom for saying yeah. that. Um, so that was my journey. And I really loved cooking. I loved being in the kitchen, learning new things. And from St. Lucia, I spent a year working at Sandals. And I said, I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm, I want to learn more about different cultures. So they had another hotel in Jamaica. So they sent me to Jamaica and I fell in love with Jamaica. Mm. I was there for two years. And I just loved seeing the similarities with Jamaican food, but also the differences and how warm and friendly people were and just the, the environment and the dance hall culture and everything. I'd love to go to Jamaica. It's the best. And, and it was, it's so beautiful. The people are so great. It just, it just has a... You know, there's places where it just has a vibe. Yeah. You know, like you go to New York. It, it, yeah, it has a vibe. You go to Miami, it has a vibe. You go to Jamaica, it has a vibe. Positive vibe. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so that for me was really, really fun, you know, as a young chef, you know, just being eager and learning. And my chef at the time, I had worked in all the different outlets in the hotel. And I'm like, chef, I'm like, I feel like I'm, I'm hitting a ceiling here. Like, what's, what's, what am I missing here? How long did it take you to feel that way? Because you said it you was, started with sandals. Yeah, and, it, was, it was, I would say it was three years. Okay. And I was 21. And he's like, you need to go to culinary school. Mm. And so I went back and I told my parents, I'm like, I want to go to culinary school to, you know, to take the next step. And they're like, are you sure you want to do this? So then I went to the CIA, and that was great formal training. Didn't like the cold. No? No. <laughs> Coming from the Caribbean. I no, I, I, didn't, I didn't like the cold. <laughs> um, but I still also had this journey of I'm here in the States. I didn't know how long I was going to be in the States, and I wanted to learn from the best. So that's why I went to work with, uh, at Restaurant Danielle. Yeah. Before we get into that, I feel like I want to reflect on this time. You've dropped a lot on us. I love that yeah. you're going through it quickly. <laughs> I love that getting the big picture. Any key mentors in your life up to this point who really made an impression on you? Well, it was really my grandmother. My grandmother, you know, every morning I woke up, she was in the kitchen. Mm. She was like the chef. She had a prep list. She had, I'm like, Granny, what's for, what's for lunch? And she's going down the list and she's making all these things. And there's like 10 pots, you know, with rice and, and stews and all these things. And it started off where I'm like, oh, I'm like, if you want, I'll peel the carrots for you. I'll cut the onions. I'll strain the stock. I'll do all these things. So I became like a little sous chef, yeah. you know, at a young age. And it was just, I, I felt so important helping her out and making the family meals with, my, you know, with her. And it was just nice to just say, like, look, I helped create this today. So... What, look, I helped create this today. Um, what was it specifically that you think that you loved? Was it the the recognition that you, or like the ability that to be seen for the thing that you're doing to contribute? I don't want to put words into your well, mouth. Well, I, I think it was 
making people happy. Mm. Like, you know, when you make something and um, seeing their face light up. Like, yeah. oh my, oh, like, because I think food is very, it touches the soul. It's very nostalgic where it takes you back to a sweet memory, whether it's a childhood memory or, you know, a family memory or whatever it is. I think food translates it back to that time. Yeah. And I just love seeing people say, oh my gosh, this reminds me of my mom's cooking or something I had on a vacation. So for me, that was just like, you know, igniting that memory for me was very special. And just seeing people happy, you know, because I want to make people happy. Yeah. And it was, you know, doing that through food was very important. And I I think like the equivalent was seeing people happy and knowing that you're the root cause of that happiness is, and whether you want to admit it or not, but we're very tribal creatures. We we need the approval of other people. We we thrive on it. And I think that the, a smile is like the best sign of course of someone's approval. And like once we, we need that, we need, if we feed off of that, it's it's right in there in Maslow's hierarchy of needs of the things that we just need to, to be happy. And it's so powerful. So, okay. Thank you for getting into that. So back to where we left off, mm-hmm. you go to CIA. What about the CIA? Any key mentors there? Any people that really change your perspective on the industry? Well, I was just it was just nice to... I still talk to some of the students that I went to school with. Um, some of them are not cooking anymore. One of them is actually a cop in New York. Um, and I think a lot of people, it was just great to see all these different people from different backgrounds. We had one woman who was a lawyer. Mm-hmm. She was older and she might to be a chef you had one woman who was an amazing baker you know so you had all these different backgrounds and there were people from all over the world coming to the school and just hearing their stories and connecting with them um, was really nice because you know getting the formal training for me um, studying wines you know learning about mother sauces and all these things for me was just like I didn't know any of this existed until I went to school so for me that was just the first you know opening for me of just like the French cuisine yeah. um, being the pinnacle of, of, you know, fine cuisine. Beautiful. Um, how was that experience for you? Were you successful in school? Do you think that like more I successful than so. other people? <laughs> I don't know. I think I did okay. I yeah. mean, I think the academic side for me, I, I did okay. Yeah. But when it came to the cooking, it was like, I was just trying to like suck everything up yeah. because a lot of the things I was not exposed to in the Caribbean, like Asian cuisine or, or, you know, formal French cuisine or Italian, those things are not present in the Caribbean so much in that setting. So for me, I was just kind of in awe, like, oh my gosh, this is, I'm making all these yeah. notes, you know? And it's been my experience through all these interviews that the people that end up at the CIA who are in their early to like mid twenties tend to do the best. I feel like, I don't know if that's a trend that you've picked up on too, but it's always the people who've had, got at least two or three years in the experience. Right. Their, their mind is made. They know that they love it and they, they always get the most out of that experience. Well, I think that is, it's a, di- a path that you want to take. Yeah. You know, it's, I think if you're younger, you're still kind of trying to figure stuff out, you know, because before I wanted to cook, I wanted to study agriculture because I thought that was just, the thing because that was our main industry back in the Caribbean you know bananas and and everything else so I'm like that's I want to study that and I want to come home and that completely changed but I was young I was 17 18 thinking that 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 was the right path for me and it wasn't Mm -hmm. well good thing you got that experience (laughs) so um you graduate why Danielle Blue because at that time this was 2000 2001 okay and you know, I was looking at all these chefs that have, you know, four stars, 
you know, Michelin, you know, Michelin stars, also um, New York Times reviews. So I'm looking at all these people that I want to learn from because my whole mindset was I'm just going to be here for school. I'm going to go. I'm going to go back home. So I'm like, okay, if I'm going to choose one person in the world while I'm here in the States, who am I going to work for? And he was just somebody that I admired. And I thought that he was doing something that was really special. And I, I said, I'm like, if I'm going to do it, it's going to be at that, at this restaurant. So obviously, Danielle Balud's known for his food. Yes. Uh, but what was it beyond that that attracted you to him? Well, I just think the structure of the restaurant, the, he has you know, so much finesse in the way he presents, the way he carries himself, the way he, the way he cooks, he has confidence. Um, and the way he has his kitchen set up is very formal, which I have never worked in before. And that was something that I wanted to really dive into because I'm like, if I'm going to do it, I, I want to experience something different, not really be in my comfort zone. And what did you learn about how he led his team, about the culture of that restaurant? Um, what things about how he did stuff really imprinted on you? So the one thing I definitely took away from working at Danielle was perfection or nothing. Mm. You know, that was one restaurant where I, I, I watched everything, you know, and every single thing that they did. And, you know, no food was sent back. Um, there were very few guest complaints because everything had to be perfect all the time. So perfect for me might be different for you. Right. But so, you know what their level of perfect is because, they, it, you know, I'll give you a funny story. So I was working garbage and we have cameras in the kitchen and the maitre d' walks in and says, Thomas Keller sitting at the bar. Ooh. And it's like everybody just stopped. Everybody's like, all right, Thomas Keller is, is, is sitting at the bar and everybody's like waiting for the order to come in. And everybody got a plateau of canapes. And I remember that like the, the chef de cuisine at the time, Alex Lee says, Choose the best muscle, choose the, 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 and have everything laid out. So I thought I had chosen the nicest one. And he's like, why did you choose that? That's the biggest one. And I'm like, because the biggest better. And he's like, no, it's not. He's like, and he, he's, he picked up like a medium-sized muscle. It was like really petite. And he says, this is, this is the perfect size. And so those are the things that I, that I took away where it's just like the focus on all the details is collective and that's what makes the experience so perfect the focus on all the details is collective and that's what makes it so perfect so it's it's trusting everybody in their role to do the thing uh and then bringing it together at the past so all that energy is going into the little details yeah okay um how do you how do we recreate that in in our business well, I think it starts with education of your staff. Mm. You know, letting your you're letting your staff know that you know this is this is the standard. So this is what I expect. Um, I think that's a big thing for me. Um, communicating that with my staff is, is is a really important thing because if you don't do that, they assume that that's the right size. The way I thought that big muscle was the right size, and yeah. I was wrong. So saying like, "Hey, this size is right. This size is wrong," or "This is what you're tasting," and that that comes down to training people. Yeah. So constant, constantly training, constantly, constantly training. And again, to put the emphasis back on the, I think your major point, which was if you, if you, if you teach everybody the details and you teach everybody the standards across the boards and you let people focus on that element on doing just that piece, right. Then you can bring everything together and, and the collective 
will be much better. Yes. Um, is, I think the overall lesson that we're supposed to take yeah. from that too. And just a side note, I'm going to throw it in here. I, I, I saw you like cringe a little bit when yeah. you heard the background noise. Yeah. I want you to know that I love the background because <laughs> I want people to know that we're sitting in your right. restaurant. So the more kitchen noise that comes out of there. I get very the- hypersensitive when that, because I'm just like, <laughs> what's going on? No, what, you know, uh, we love it. We love it. It's charming. So don't worry about okay. it. I want you to know that I'm not worried about it. Then so break a plate, guys. <laughs> yeah. So uh, moving forward, uh, you were, how long were you with Danielle? It was a year. A year. It was a year. And it was because I had, it was just being in New York. I just didn't, I didn't enjoy it. I don't, it's chilly up there. And I'm from was, New Hampshire and there's right. a reason why I moved to Texas. Right. It, it's, it's, it's too cold and I didn't like the rat race mentality of just like being on the subway and like rush hour traffic and living in a tiny apartment, you Always know. somewhere to be, right? Yeah. You know, it, it's like I, I lived in Flushing. Yeah. The last stop on the 7 train after a long day. That's a long train ride, you know, and it's, it was a dead of winter and I just, I'm like, I, this is. There's other restaurants I can go to. So your next move is to Miami, the, yeah. the closest place to home with, with staying in yeah. the United States. Yeah. Uh, what was it specifically about Miami, though, that drew you to that city? So I, when I was figuring out leaving New York, I said, okay, if I'm going to leave and I want somewhere tropical, Miami's the obvious reason I would, you know, I'd, I'd make that jump. And Norman Van Aken, um, an American chef that was doing Latin and Caribbean food. And the, the ingredients he was using were really humble Caribbean ingredients that I wanted, I grew up with. But the way he was putting it on the plate, I had never seen it before. And I had applied, you know, numerous times. I just never had a position open. And finally, um, I moved to Miami and I just took a, like a simple job just to fill in until they had some availability. And, I got a phone call. I said, okay, we have a position open. And I finally got to work at, with Norman Van Aken for a while. And for me, that was really a nice segue, you know, coming from Danielle, you know, working at Norman because it was still very um, fine dining, but the ingredients changed. Okay. So using things like conch, using things like scotch bonnet, using things like um, coconut milk, which... Danielle, we never used. So for me, just seeing those things, I'm like, oh my God, I grew up with all these things. I want to use them. Um, and this is actually a cool way that he's doing it. A little byproduct of getting closer to home, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so at the, I'm assuming now the year is 2004? Yes. Okay. So the year is 2004. Um, why, what, at this time in your mind, um, are you giving a minimum amount of time to these restaurants? Do you have a plan to just do so much time here and so much time there? Do you have a strategy? Like what's going through right. your head? Well, I think at that time it was it was required that you do a year. Yeah. You know, that if you did anything less, it would people would just like don't even put in your resume. Why yeah. why even waste your time? Yeah. But I ended up staying longer with Norman for uh, almost two and a half years okay. because I was just learning everything. I really liked the sense of the small kitchen and the weather. The weather, <laughs> you know, that was a big plus for me. So but I also saw it as like, okay, if if I'm going to make a move, where would it be? And there wasn't really anything going on um, for that time because, you know, Miami was still still up and coming. There weren't a lot of independent restaurants. It was mostly in hotels mm-hmm. on, on South Beach. So they were not, it was just pretty much Norman and maybe a couple here and there. There were not a lot of 
independent restaurant. It was like the Ritz Carlton or the Mandarin or the Marriott or whatever else it was. There was not, nothing else. So that's why I said I'm just going to stick it out and learn as much as I can. Okay. What were some of the like big, I mean, two and a half years, and you must have picked up some lessons on business. I mean, I know you're, you're evolving as a chef at this time. Yeah. But did you learn about operations or things to do that you wouldn't have done if you didn't get this experience? Right. Uh, a little bit. Uh, I think as a line cook, you don't really get that ex- that next financial step unless yeah. you become a sous chef. Okay. And even then, some people don't really open up their books and say, hey, look at the invoice, look at the price here, look at all these things. Um, so there was a little bit of talk because, you know, fine dining, there is some kind of mentality of like only the best ingredients. We don't care about the cost because c- we're charging so much money. So those numbers kind of fall into place. Yeah. Um, but they still had to be very mindful about not over ordering or spoilage. But it was still, they still had that cushion because they were charging so much money. Got you. Um, so when did you really start to learn about the business of restaurants? When did that come into your life? So 2009, 2008 was the recession. Okay. Yep. And I was looking for the next step and I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm getting... You know, I need to. I had my whole guideline. Like, I wanted to be a sous chef by this age and do all these things. And the Fountain Blue Hotel, where Scott Cohen was opening up, Scott Petter was opening up, and everybody's like, "Why are they opening up in a recession? They're crazy. They spent a billion dollars on this hotel." And I said, "I'm just going to apply for sous chef." I didn't have any management experience, but you know, I kind of knew something. And when I applied to the tasting and I didn't really have the financial side of it, but I saw it as, okay, I'm working in this mega, mega million hotel. Um, so there must be some kind of system in place, which was actually really helpful because for me coming in, they knew they had all the systems in place. They had um, software that had that controlled the payroll. So if I knew that the cook was going into overtime, it would, show red and say hey jimmy's gonna go into overtime and then you're like so it kind of kept you in line um and you're also working with um with uh accounting and also the financial uh, people that were doing all the stuff because they would say hey your food cost is a little bit high and i'm like well i don't know why and they would basically print out the p and l and say well it's because you spent you know $10,000 $10,000 on, I don't know, truffles, whatever it was, yeah. so whatever it is. So they kind of had those guidelines because they knew that a lot of people are not looking at those financial things. They're just looking at running a service and expediting a service. And it's more than that. I think a lot of people think that cooking is just about making great food and having a great service. It's actually the financial side because there's a lot of restaurants that run and you think, oh man, they're crushing it. And they're in the red, which is I know a, a lot of restaurants. And I mean, I kind of feel a little out of place, like, but just just talking to people in this city, like a real conversation I just had with Michael Muffaletto was yeah. that you know you're getting all these industry accolades, and you're, you're I'm from the outside looking in, everyone's like they're the guys, like they're they're killing right. it, right? Um, but at the same time, he was like during all that time, we were barely getting by, like yeah. we were afraid, like we're like name like getting all these accolades we're afraid we won't make payroll that right week. like how messed up is our industry that like that's a thing you know what it, i mean it, yeah it, it's very stressful because um the industry you know pre-pandemic you know people think it's glamorous oh you have your own restaurant everything is great i'm like okay you really don't know what's going on because i don't sleep at night i'm stressed out yeah. um you're dealing with a lot of staffing issues sometimes you're dealing with you know prices going up for food 
So you're dealing with a it's a it's a big chess game that you're playing, and now with this with the pandemic, it's made even worse. Mm. So the chances of one in in ten restaurants making it, you know, after year one is it's now four and five, or no, or sorry, four out of five won't it, make it, it. It's like four point five. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's it's crazy what's happening. Um, so you learned a lot, and is this when you're work with uh chef um. Scott. Scott. Yes. Okay. So this is at Scarpetta, yes. which is inside a hotel. Yes. So when you're with, so was it the Scarpetta restaurant that was giving you all these guidelines or was it the hotel? The hotel. Okay. Yeah. How does that work, that, that dynamic, the relationship between the restaurant and the hotel? Where do you guys draw lines? So we were pretty lucky that they were not overbearing in terms of you need to have this on the menu, you need to have a chopped salad, you need to have, you know, roasted chicken. They pretty much left us alone. As long as the numbers fell into place, they left us alone. So you're getting your revenue from the hotel to do all of your purchasing. Yeah. So how, how would you profit? Would the hotel profit and cut you a check? Is that how it worked? So the way it worked, it was we were hotel employees. Okay. And Scott was is a management deal. So he got a percentage of that. Okay. Got you. Um, but what are the benefits of of I mean, what were the things that you, like, I think you kind of pointed out the, the importance of following the numbers, so the importance of having a budget, mm-hmm. the importance of getting creative with the, to make the budget work. What right. else am I missing with the key lessons? Well, there? I think, you know, with, within the, the hotel dynamic, I think that having those systems in place, you are held accountable for those things. Yeah. You know, why didn't you make, you know, why were you over in labor? Why were you over in food costs? It's having those, those numbers, which a lot of people don't really follow those yeah. numbers. They're just like, I'm just going to wing it and then I'll see what's left in the bank account at the end of the year. That's not really a way to run a business. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was a saying that we, we should keep um, as one of our guidelines is that if you're over your food cost by the middle of the month, it's very hard to make up mm-hmm. the last two weeks okay. because all you're doing is running out of stuff. Yeah. Just trying to just, you know, make, just make those numbers work. So, if you're already over, if you already have a 40% food cost, you know, by June 16th, you're not going to make it because that means you're running out of carrots, onions, steak, whatever it is. Like you're just trying to make things work, but you just have to be mindful. And I think a lot of people think that sometimes having a bigger menu, more variety means more money. Actually, no, it doesn't. Mm. Why doesn't it? Because it's more inventory. Money on shelves. Money. Exactly. So you have a high inventory. High turn or like turn. Things exactly not, not using everything. So and then also some of the stuff may or may not sell. Yeah, you know. So it's it's almost better to have a smaller menu, and then you can run daily specials or weekly specials. And then the guest sees, okay, well, they're always having specials or they're always keeping things fresh. So it's it's not like the same stagnant menu. Got you. Um, I think the other lesson that was kind of subtle, but it was there, is the importance of using technology to back you up too. Yeah. Like there's so many tools out there today. Like. You need to be on top of so much. Why not get a little help? I mean, maybe you're spending a little bit more every month to get access to that technology, but how much money are you losing because you can't, you're you're not staying on top of everything, you know? Um, so it's kind of like a, you got to look at it that way. Um, so any other key lessons and from my research at this point, you said it was 2008 or we wait more into the future. It was 2008. I was there until 2013, 13. So you spent a good chunk there, five years. Um, and I know it was 2015 that you went in uh, audition for a Top Chef. What happened in between those two years when you left? So Chef no, Scott? 2013 is when I was on Top Chef. Oh, okay, so yeah. you left Chef Scott to go on to Top Chef. It was the last year I got a phone call 
and it, I mean, I was in the shits. It was a, like a Friday. So you were in the shits? Yeah. Okay. So they, they're like, uh, can we talk to Nina Compton? And I'm like, I'm like, yes, yeah, speaking, you know, what, what's going on? They're like, well, you know, we want to send you this, this email about um, this show that we're thinking. And I'm like, listen, just send me an email. Here's my email. And um, I'll look at it, you know, over the weekend. And I never got the email. So they call me back and they're like, hey, we sent you the email. I'm like, I didn't get anything. And I'm like, what is this about? I'm like, I'm really busy. Like, what's going on? And they're like, well, we're, you know, we're scouting for this cooking show. And I'm like, okay, what show is it? Like, we can't really say. And I'm like, listen, I'm really busy. I'm about to go into service. Just tell me, yeah. you know? And like, oh, well, it's for Top Chef. So then I'm like, okay. So I'm like, Top Chef. I'm like, okay, all right. And, and I'm like, well, let me think about it. And Scott had done a bunch of stuff for Food Network and Chopped. And I called him up. I'm like, hey, I'm like, Scott, I got this phone call. I'm like, what should I do? He's like, he's like, go on the show. He's like, you might win the money, all these things. And I'm like, I'm like, okay. I'm like, let me think about it. What and is I, the prize for Top Chef? Anyways, 100000 Yeah. Okay. Um, and I called my mom and I'm like, mom, I got this phone call to do this show. And she's like, don't do it. Why? She's like, you're going to stress me out. Don't go on the show. I'll never watch the show. And I'm like, and I, I wasn't really in it for the money. I was more of like kind of using it as a platform to let people know about Caribbean food and where I'm from and all these things. And she's like, and I'm like, mom, I think I'm going to do it. I'm like, what if I win? She's like, okay, but I just won't watch the show. And when I went on the show, Scott said to me, those last words were, whatever you do, be yourself on the show. Mm. He's like, don't try and be this character and, and be outrageous and all these things he's like because once the cameras go away that vision is all that, that people remember and since he said that I'm like you know what you're exactly right because there were people on the show that were trying to be this outrageous character and loud and boisterous just trying to get attention and when you look back I'm like this guy is a clown yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean so I was very thankful for that advice um so I went, we filmed late spring of that year. And I had known what the, what the outcome was. And, you know, Scott said, like, listen, your life is going to get crazy. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you're going to start getting emails and phone calls on these things. And I'm like, all right. So the show wraps. I'm run up. And there's no... How long did it take to record the show? Uh, we do six. They break it up. So it's six weeks. Okay. And then I guess they edit and pause. And then they, we filmed the fin- finale in October. Okay. So from then, it was kind of like this waiting period of like, what's going to happen? And I'm like, there's no phone calls. There's no emails. So I'm like, I guess I'm just a dud. And a couple of months go by and it's just emails and phone calls and all these things are happening. And, you know, I'm still working full time at the hotel. It's a very, very busy restaurant. So I was scheduling all these things on my days off. So I... Finish service, you know, at midnight, jump on a plane at 5 a.m., go to L.A., do some appearance, whatever it is, fly back, you know, drop my suitcase in the office and then come right back to work. And I was kind of getting burnt out and I, I just said, I'm like, this is, this is not fun. This is not what I want to do. This is, this shouldn't be success, you know. And I told Scott, I'm like, I'm going to take a break and figure out what's next for me because I'm trying to, I'm trying to balance all these things and I'm, I'm, you know, there's so many things on the table that I don't even have time to look at them. And he was actually very supportive and I was very thankful for that because I was able to step away and kind of process what was being thrown at me. Okay. So 
what happened when you stepped away and processed everything? I had a lot of travel. I was traveling a lot almost every week. Okay. So this is all before you got the news that yeah. it's because you had a, the summer basically into yeah. early fall yeah. that same year. Yeah. So you just, were you just kind of trying to collect yourself and. Well, you know, at that point it was, I had a lot of people just asking me to do like cooking appearances, do all these things. Um, Cause at this point the show is. It's still rolling. It's still rolling. Yeah. Okay. So I was just trying to just take some time off. Yeah. You know, um, and, you know, traveling a lot. It, it is, people think it's glamorous. It's very tiring, you know, and, you know, if you fly to LA, you think of the time difference. And then it's, you know, you got to be at the airport two hours before. Yeah, and, and you're in a strange place. You can't even go to the grocery store right. without checking your GPS first. And right. I can totally relate. So <laughs> it, it, it's not, it's not a, it is exciting, you know, when you, when you do it. And then after a while, it's just like, yeah. I'm over it. Yeah. You know? Um, so with the travel, that was just keeping me busy at the time. And during that time, people were saying like, hey, why don't you open a restaurant in Miami? And we were, we were like trying to venture out and do those things. And we looked at a couple of places in Miami and the rents were just so high. Yeah. Like insanely high. I'm like, how do people pay $75,000 a month? A month. Jesus. Just for rent. And... We had we had looked at a space that we had entertained a little bit, and my husband and I, and I'm like, yeah, it could work, you know. And then he's like, okay, go home and do a business plan, like just do a schedule of how many staff you're gonna need, dishwashers, everything. And just for back at the house, it was like an insane number, just just for the payroll. And I felt sick to my stomach because I'm like, this. Do you remember the number? It was something like with the rent. Because the rent was thirty thousand, just for the back of the house, it was like twenty grand. Twenty grand a month. A month, and that doesn't include servers or food or anything else. And I'm, I was thinking to myself, I can't imagine the summertime when it's dead, dealing with, you know, a hurricane or any of those things. You still have to you still have to pay that rent. Yeah, you, it's still a fixed cost. Yeah. So. I just could not stomach that. And I'm like, I don't, I, I don't want any part of that. Okay. And, you know, we had other, other offers in Chicago, New York, all over the place. And my husband was like, well, if we're going to move, where do you want to move to? And I'm like, I don't want to move back to New York. And we thought, <laughs> we thought about it. I'm like, well, we can find a... Or Chicago. You know what I mean? I'm like, if I'm, like, I'm going to move to New York, I want to live a block from the restaurant, above yeah. the restaurant. I don't want to deal with trains or any of that stuff. Yeah. And, of course, you start looking at the rents in New York, and I'm like... Yeah, it, it's, it's just like Miami. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it didn't make sense. So, okay, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back to, to discover why you chose New Orleans. Did you know Toast is the number one most recommended POS on Restaurant Unstoppable? I'm sure it has something to do with the fact that more than two-thirds of their employees have worked in the restaurant industry. And I'm feeling pretty confident that has something to do with their commission-free online ordering, which is a hot ticket right now, which lets guests easily order directly from restaurants for pickup or contactless delivery to keep revenue flowing during these uncertain times. They even have delivery services, which dispatches local drivers through an on-demand network to keep your community fed and revenue coming. Regardless of the reason why people are recommending Toast, I highly recommend you go check them out during this industry-wide pause. To 
learn more, head to toasttab.com slash unstoppable. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, for a limited time, get one month of free POS software, three months of free digital ordering tools, and 50% off implementation to ease the impact of COVID-19. This is a value of $1,000. One more time, that's toasttab.com dot com slash unstoppable you have to use that link to save one thousand dollars we're back and um now you're you're getting all these offers you're trying to figure out what you're gonna do what was your relationship with scott at this point did he was he resentful that you left no no he was he was very supportive because he you mean gave him five years he was i mean scott and i still talk yeah you know to this day he has been my biggest cheerleader and very supportive and he knows the game i mean he's been in the same position as a cook becoming a sous chef, becoming a CDC, yeah. and then getting an offer. So he knows um, what, what, what the, the, the progression yeah. is. Um, so for him, I, you know, and I spoke to him even after I left about the deals I was getting. You know, he's like, listen, make sure you sign the right deal. He's like, make sure that... And he said, he said the best, Scott is like the best with like one-liners. He says... It's not who you marry, Nina. It's who you divorce. Mm. So make sure you sign the right deal because when you're married, everything is great. But then when you get divorced, they want everything. Yeah. And he's had a couple of those deals where that's, that's happened to him. And he said, listen, if you want, I have a lawyer that can read over everything for you to make sure that you're getting a fair deal. Yes. And that's a, that in itself is a lesson right there. Always get a lawyer, somebody yeah. that looks out for your interests. Right. Yeah. Awesome stuff. So. Um, do you want to add on to that? No, no, no. Okay. So um, what ultimately brought you to New Orleans? So we had filmed our season here. Okay. And I always wanted to come here. I had never been. And once we filmed, there was so much, so many similarities between New Orleans and the Caribbean. Like what? The architecture, um, the music, the food, um, their, their playfulness, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> That was really like it's it's. I tell people it's very enchanting when you come here. It yeah. has like the trees. I think are enchanting. In everything, like, yeah. everything, just the colors of the buildings. Yeah. You know, everything is. It, it pulls you in. And once we wrapped, and I'm like, and I'm like, I I, I want to live there, but we didn't know how to get there. Mm. You know, and I was actually I'll not I'll not forget. It, I was in Toronto doing an event, and my husband calls me. He's like. He's like, I got a phone call today. It's for a restaurant in And I'm like, no, it's too good. Because we had talked to so many people. And, and I'm like, this is just going to be another deal that falls flat. And he's like, no, I think this is going to be the one. So I'm like, well, let's talk to the people. We talked to them. And they're like, well, we'll fly you up so you can see the space. And we had walked into Compilla Pen. It was wires hanging, dirt floors. It was a mess. And I fell in love with it. And I'm like, this is the space. And yeah. we had walked, I don't know, dozens of places where I'm like, oh, well, well it's great, but it needs to, this needs to be fixed or we need to add this or we need to, you know, cut this off or whatever it was. There was always like some kind of change we wanted to do. With that space, it was just like, even though it's a complete mess, this is, this is perfect. Mm. So... Was it just the the energy that you, you were getting in that space, or yeah, it was the energy, and I just had a vision of what it would look like. Yeah. Whereas well, most places I I walked into, I'm like, how can I, 
I, I can't really see it come together. Yeah. But it, so it felt right. We it, knew yeah. that. But what about the numbers? The num- were the numbers right compared to what you were looking at in Miami? Yeah, you know, it, it, it makes sense. Um, and I think that it, it, we had a team that was able to make things transparent. Okay. You know, where, again, it comes down to the numbers, the budget. You know, as a chef, you know, this is my, f- I've opened a couple of restaurants um, for other people. This being my first restaurant by myself, my my personal restaurant, I'm like I want the best equipment. I want you know, as a young chef, yeah. you want all these things, you want the, your all the, all the bells and whistles. And I remember the guy that was doing the, he was he was the con, the main contractor, and, and they had a I forget his name, GC or whatever it was. He um he had the whole budget and everything. So he's like, okay, well, give me your OSNE and your everything that you want. And I submit. What's an OSNE? It's um, operating. Larry? <laughs> it's operating. Larry. Where's Larry? Larry. <laughs> Op- it's, not, it's, it's operating equipment and supplies. Okay, gotcha. Okay. Sorry. Put, so, anyway, you. I just want to make sure I didn't, I didn't screw up. But anyway, <laughs> so I submitted that. And um, they're like, you're crazy. They're like, this is the number. And you can't spend a dollar over it. Do you know that number? Do you remember that number? I can't remember. But it was, Ballpark? I, mean, I can't remember. Yeah. But it, it was like tens of thousands of dollars. I yeah. mean, you're opening a restaurant. You yeah. need, you need it's ni- expensive. You need nine pants. You need a blender. You need, you need all of this stuff. Ovens, range. Exactly. Yeah. So all, all of these things, it's not just you know, the tables and the chairs. It's everything else. Yeah. And um, they're like, this, this is the number. And I'm like, I can't get like... So they're this, giving you the budget of what you were allowed to spend, and yeah. you were. Because I guess I had given my dream budget. I'm like, well, I'm the chef owner here. I should get everything I want. <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 no. This is this is the number here. Yeah. And I think that's why a lot of people, when they open restaurants, they overspend. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and you're already in, you're already in the red to open a restaurant, and sometimes like it comes back to the menus. Sometimes you have to have. So you have to start off small and make some money and say, okay, now I can afford yes. the cryovac machine. Now I can get this. So, I mean, I, I've seen so many people open up these beautiful restaurants and then... They have this vision and they want it on day one. And they don't right. realize that all these incredible chefs that have these things didn't start where they are now. Right. They started with doing what you're saying. They started right. where they could. Right. And they let cash flow determine their growth. Right. right? Um, so what... I mean, at this point, you didn't even know that you got second place and fan favor on right. Top Chef, right? Yeah. You're still like, wait, like, what's the like when you're going through this? Is it like September, August? Like, what, what's the this month? This was late November. Okay, so that, you already went on the show. Yeah, because you wrapped the show. Yeah, so that was this, that was announced in February. Okay, so but you already knew you won. You just weren't allowed to say anything to the public, or you knew when you got second place. Yeah, I I already knew. I couldn't say anything. Okay, and. When, after the after the show had wrapped, when we announced that we were going to be moving here, you know, we were kind of a little scared a little bit because I'm like, okay, this is a great move. We're moving to New Orleans. We love it. This is great. Yeah. And then um, I started to get a little scared because I'm like, I'm like, wait, I'm moving to New Orleans and there's all these big chefs here. And, I'm, <laughs> I, you know, I'm a new person, you yeah. know, coming in and how am I going to get received? Yeah. And I was a little bit scared because, you know, you have Donald Link, you have 
Emma Lagasse, you have Dookie Chase, you have the chefs from Commander's Palace, you, John have, Bash. you have all these people yeah. that have been around here for a long time and here I'm coming in you because also in Miami, at that time when I was there, you saw a lot of chefs, out-of-town out chefs come in and they come in with their collars popped up, oh, I'm going to crush it. And then six months after, they don't make it. Yeah. So I'm like, am I going to be one of those? And, you know, I... I Did you ever pop your collar? No, I didn't. Okay. I did. Yeah. I Maybe kept that's it why better. you made it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I was kind of coming in as I want to just stay quiet for a little bit and, like, observe and, you know, see what's going on. And people knew I, w- I was already coming to town. So we go to restaurants and they're like, oh, my gosh, Nina, so happy to see you. Welcome to the city. And I'm like... I just want to have a little quiet lunch with my husband. You know, I, I don't want to. I don't want to. Are be these seen. the restaurant owners? The the some, yes. s- some of the some of the restaurant owners, some of the chefs. Yeah. And you know, whenever we went, people were just like, "Oh, we're so happy you're here, and we can't wait to see you." Nice. So it, it it says something uh, about the city that people are excited about cooking and something new. Yeah. And they're welcoming, and there's no ego behind that because I thought, you know, you see a lot of people when pe- people open up in New York. O- open Miami it's like a it's kind of like a, a judgment yeah. thing we're like oh let me see what this guy can do so back um, regarding your partners you know you said a lot of people were making offers where they make did you already select the people you'd be going into business with um, your yeah. husband who's yes. a, I know he's a partner in this restaurant yes. was he was he a partner in the, the original restaurant yes. okay yes. Um, and who else was involved so we partnered also with uh, Providence Hotels okay so they that's where people think that Compella Pen is in a separate location, but it's actually in the hotel. Okay. Um, and that was, you know, pretty helpful because, again, having that corporate structure. Well, yeah, I was going to say that's kind of your, you came up that way. Yeah. Well, it was part of your come up, right? right? And I know you worked in a couple other hotels before yeah. um, working with Scott. So what are the benefits to that? approach to, to partnering with a hotel? What do we need to know if we're maybe interested in partnering? Well, with I think, I mean, there's two, there's two deals that you can um, get with a hotel. Okay. You can either get a management deal or you can pay rent. What's the difference? Management deal is you get a percentage of the profits. Okay. Whereas if you're paying rent, you're just a tenant. You're getting all the profit, but you're paying out a higher... Yeah, I mean, I, there's, I, it is a lot, you know, if... if if you have to pay rent in those hotels because it's you're still paying back for the construction of everything else. Yeah. You know what I mean? What what do you think is the better deal? Is it, it depends. Case by case? It depends. It depends on the size of the restaurant, you know, because the bigger the restaurant, the higher the rent. Yep. You know, but if it's a bigger restaurant and you have a management deal and you're crushing it, you get then, a percentage of that. And you wish you had more. <laughs> exactly. You know, so I, it all depends. So what are the things, so like what, so the the bigger the space, maybe the, would you recommend management or rent? It depends because if it's bigger and let's say you do, I mean, there's some restaurants. It all depends on how successful the business is. Right. right. So <laughs> if, if, I mean, if you're, if you're doing three, four hundred covers a night, and your check average is a hundred bucks. I mean, yeah. Where do you think people get in the most trouble with those arrangements? What What are things that people need to be mindful of if they're considering that arrangement? Right. I think you have to really think the long term. You know, what do you want out of it long term? Do you want to just because if you are a management deal, a lot of people just open it up. They put a chef that they trust in place, 
and they they can walk away. Yeah. So so you didn't have to get financing or anything like no. that. You just sold yourself to the hotel. Right. Beautiful. I think. I mean, I kind of like that idea. I feel like it takes a lot of the the burden. It off does the because you know it, it. You have the you have that structure in place, um, and they are very helpful in terms of like guidance. And you know, if if I say, hey, listen, we want to expand X Y Z, they're open to it. It's all about communication and making both parties money. Yeah. Um, were you able to share with your partners your outcome? I mean, they're investing. They knew, in you. yeah, yeah, okay. they, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. I mean, I, I could, I could just tell a very small, small crew. And I, again, you didn't really know how that was going to impact everything because you didn't really know how the people viewing the show would take it. Yeah, they could either be like screw her, or they could be like pissed off, like they were pissed off. Yeah, and you didn't know that you won fan favor until no. February because that's right. when the fans had watched it. Yeah. So how did that impact your business? I mean, I still get I still get messages, people saying I'm pissed off that you lost, <laughs> you know, or you should have won. Yeah, you know, so people are still emotionally invested in what the whole season thing. are they on now? Twenty or something like that. <sighs> I don't know. I gotta go back. And yeah, I know. <laughs> Me too. Like, I know her. Um, all right, so it was 2015 when you opened mm-hmm. um, your first location. Now. Three years later, you opened where we're sitting today, uh, Bywater American Bistro. Yeah. What changed in your life? Like, what? Where were you with with your first location that made you feel confident enough that you could step away from that to set, to focus on a second location? I think it was it, we was we had stabilized enough. What does stabilization look like? Stabilization is where you have a team that you can trust. Okay, and you can say, okay, guys, this is going on, and you know we had been looking for a second space for a while. And we live in this neighborhood. And we were thinking, I'm like, okay, on my days off, you know, whether it's Sunday, Monday, and I'm like, the restaurants here are kind of limited. There's only a few. And there are more restaurants since we've been open coming up. So you're, you, you live in this community where Bywater, American I used to live up, I used to live upstairs. Okay, got you. And you said that this area doesn't really have anything. So you, you, you recognize that there was a need. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are restaurants here. But... Um, they're not enough. Mm-hmm. And a lot of restaurants that have opened up in this area um, failed. Why do you think? Uh, people are saying it's because of Airbnb. Okay. Um, I don't really know. I don't, it could be just not enough foot traffic. I'm, I'm not really so the, sure. the people that are here in this community aren't regulars? Well, now they are because they, they kind of gave okay. uh, a little bit of pushback on Airbnb. But I think now that the, you know, when we are looking at the space, I, you know, I talked to Donald Link and he's like, the buy water. He's like, why would you open up there? He's like, I wouldn't touch that with a stick. <laughs> and I respect Donald a lot. He has, you know, a, a few very successful restaurants and in town. who's Donald? He owns Pesh, Koshan, Herb Saint, Gianna, La Boudrie, um And he's just a friend at this time. Yeah, I mean, he was one of the, one of the first chefs that I met when I moved to town. Okay. And, you know, we talk all the time and... I think he's just a, a great wealth of knowledge. You know, he's, he is from New Orleans or Louisiana. So whenever I have a question, I always call him up and he's just, he's just very honest. I love honest. that, by the way, that people feel like we, and I think that's the one thing I want to communicate to people is that you, the people who are really successful in this industry got there because they're most likely generous and right. willing to help others right. and, and they're successful because it comes back around. Right. You know, and uh, I encourage more people to get out there and reach out to people to share knowledge. That's exactly right. what we're doing right, right. now. Yeah. yeah I, I think 
I'm a big believer in communication mm-hmm. and awareness. You know, just just telling people how it is. Yeah. You know, because not everybody can read minds. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I got a little off subject. We we're talking about the the demographics of the area of where you're opening your restaurant. Yeah. You're saying that at the time. Airbnb was an issue. How exactly was Airbnb an issue? Was it just... It was just... It became... The neighborhood became very transient. Okay. And... So there's no relationships. It's just people coming and going. Right. So you have a lot of people just here for a weekend or a wedding or something else. And they were just popping in, popping out. Okay. So what did you do differently to... That would work in that market or did the market change? The market changed. Okay. um, And you can see more restaurants are opening up in the area now, like St. Germain. Um... So there's a lot of restaurants coming now because it's stabilized. Mm. Um, because a lot of people are like, well, there's nobody living in these houses. And now now people are they're living here. So that really changed a lot. And also, I think the sense of a lot more people buying houses here has has changed a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, over the, over the years, more people are actually buying a house and living here now. Got you. So reflecting over the past, we're looking at five years now as you as an owner operator, mm-hmm. what are the biggest lessons you learned or things you wish you knew then over the past five years that you know now that you would like to, to, to pay forward to the, the listeners? Don't open a restaurant in a pandemic. <laughs> Don't open a restaurant in a pandemic. No, I mean, I mean, I think... <laughs> when did you open this location? 2018, right? Yeah. Are you trying to open another restaurant? No, no. I'm just saying life okay. in general. Okay. Gotcha. Life in general. <laughs> we um, haven't talked about life in general as far as the pandemic goes. Well, I think it, my advice to anybody right now is... Just thought of small. Yeah. You know? I'd actually encourage people to open a restaurant right now. Seriously. Because... Why? Because, well, one, there's a lot of people that were in this industry that are looking at COVID-19 as, okay, like, this is me. This is my exit strategy. Right. I'm not failing. I'm being forced to shut down. And right. I'm okay with that. Right. Right? Number right. two, all these limitations and these restrictions, you're opening up in that. So you don't have to change anything. You can right. start that way. Right. And like you're saying, you don't have to open a gigantic restaurant. There's going to be so many vacant small locations that are going to be available. Just start small where yeah. you can and scale into it. Um, I mean, there's going to be – when things turn around, they're going to turn around eventually. There's going to be a lot of more talent on the table than ever before. Right. There's so many – like if, if you truly love this industry and you're in it for the right reasons, it shouldn't matter if there's a pandemic. You know right, what I'm saying? Right, right, right. So that's kind of why I say like I encourage people because I think – I mean, everything's a pendulum. It's swung one way. If you can open in the worst of times, you can thrive in the best of times. Well, yeah. I mean, this has really been a test of of nerves, yeah. you know, because leading up to the pandemic, um, I think a lot of people, including myself, are very doubtful because I'm like, oh, it's going to be just like SARS, mm. you know. It's, it's just going to stay over there, you know, in on the west, the western side. And I had gone to Seattle in February. And I remember landing and everybody's wearing a mask in the airport. I'm like, what the hell is... Yeah, I was in LA around that same time. And yeah. I was just like, what is going on here? I'm like, Did I, I'm like oh, is, this, is this a major thing now? And I remember coming back here and I'm like, guys, this is... We got to keep on. This is, like, this is like around Super Bowl weekend. Yeah. And I came back and I'm like, listen, guys, we need to keep an eye on this because this could be bad. Yeah. You know, and I think it, it was just people being taking precaution in case, you know, somebody had it. And I remember I came home, it's like two weeks before we had to shut down. And 
I don't like watching the news because I think it's just so depressing and it's, there's nothing good on the news. And my husband put on CNN and Jose Andres was talking about feeding the, the cruise ship workers and dropping food off that cruise ship that was stuck off, stuck, stuck off land. And, and I'm like, oh my God, Jose is on the news. I'm like, let me sit down. I'm, I'm watching. And Sanjay Gupta was speaking. And I'm like, nothing nothing is good right now because he's talking about everything and, he, and Sanjay Gupta said he put up a picture and he, he showed uh, 10 people in a restaurant and one person had COVID and he said within an hour in that restaurant they said like 8 out of 10 people had gotten COVID because they were just on top of each other exactly Yeah. so I remember I came back to work the next day and I'm like guys I had a staff meeting I'm like guys this coronavirus is, is no bullshit like it, it's, it's just serious and I said, I'm like, every meal that we cook, it needs to be the best meal because people are coming out because they want to eat and they want to spend money here. So make people remember the, the food that we are cooking for them and they want to come back mm. because right now people are, people are getting scared and they're kind of like reducing yeah. their, their thing because restaurants are in the front line where it's like, don't go to restaurants, six feet apart, do all these things. And we saw the reservations just start to drop. Conventions start to cancel. And everybody's just like, okay, French Quarter Fest, that's canceled. And everybody's like, we need a Jazz Fest. We need that to happen because that is our spring yeah. revenue. That's our moneymaker. And as long as we have that money in our piggy bank, that Jazz Fest money, that spring money, we know summertime is dead. We'll just get through it. But to lose that revenue... It really hurt, I mean, everybody, because we don't have no any reserves. So what, I mean, I, f I feel like fine dining restaurants definitely got it hit the hardest, yeah. right? Um, but what are you doing uh, to look, to peer into the future? What are you going to do differently with your businesses to evolve? If you think you need to evolve, like what's your strategy? What's your plan for the future? Well, I, I mean, just downsizing, you know, I think uh, it's very hard to just, Convert this to like a. I can't takeout. Does it doesn't translate to all restaurants, mm -hmm. you know? And and we've done takeout for you know a while now, and it it's just not. I just feel like our restaurants are not on the radar for that. Where yeah. people think like, oh, I want takeout tonight. I'm going to order from pizza or Chinese yeah, food. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Those things definitely translate a lot better um, in that sense. So that was a really ch a, a big challenge for us. But now we're opening in for dining. It's kind of like downsizing everything, smaller teams, smaller menu, less inventory, you know, kind of more comfort food, more soulful stuff, um, and just making that, that, having that sweet price point. Mm. So do you think that you would change your, your need? Like, would you get out of fine dining to do something more fast, casual, more pickup, takeout? Or if you had to go that route, would it just not be worth it for you? I, I don't know. Is that not where your passion is? Yeah. It's not, not so much my passion, but I just really haven't thought about it because it's, you know, I've signed a lease for this, this yeah, space, yeah. you know, so it's not to say like I have a thousand foot, you know, space I can just block some areas off. Like you have a restaurant like this. How do you just say, okay, yeah. today we're going to do a uh, fried chicken all day long. Yeah, you know exactly. what I mean? No, I feel you. Uh, I'm sorry. I think we're all just trying to make sense of it. Yeah. Right. Um, I'm looking at the time you have. Uh, you're very busy day. I want to respect <laughs> your time. So any other thoughts that you haven't gotten out that you would hope to get out, you're hoping to discuss before we go to the speed round. I think what I would like to express is the government needs to 
We're actually working on a bill to get passed that stabilizes restaurants. It's called the Restaurant Act. Okay. And that's $120 billion. And this basically will float restaurants until the end of the year. And that is the biggest thing because right now, a lot of people don't understand that restaurants really, they don't just employ dishwashers and cooks and managers and chefs. They employ farmers, linen companies, yeah. wineries, um, you name Breweries. it. Every, everything. Yeah. So when you see those... Podcasters. Exactly. <laughs> so when you, when you have restaurants, and I spoke to a lot of my purveyors when we shut down, just to check in and say, how are you doing? And they're like, they're like you know, my business is down 90%. Yeah. Because there was no... Everything just shut down. Nobody prepared for it. Nobody said, hey, I'm slowing down. I'm going to order less or I'm going to do all these things. There was none of that. It was literally open today, closed tomorrow. And I think a lot of people, myself included, were not ready for that. And I think that the government needs to understand 11 million people are employed by this. Yeah, We have over 100,000 people just in New Orleans are in the hospitality industry. That is a third of our population. Yeah, that's crazy. That is the culture. This, like, think if you, because people don't come here just for Mardi Gras. People come here for Jazz Fest. They come here for the music. They come for the food. They come for the culture. So imagine if you came here to New Orleans and there's no Commander's Palace, no Dookie Chase. I don't have to imagine it. I'm doing it. (laughs) Right. So imagine if those restaurants don't survive and they say, you know what? We we tried and we got to close up. Dookie Chase's. That restaurant is over 75 years old. It was part of the civil rights movement. Mm. Those restaurants need to push through this. And it's not just an individual thing. It's, it's collective. You know, so that's why we need to get this, this, this bill pushed so through. So what's, what's the call to action if people want to re- sign something or get on board? They or need awareness? to. Uh, so they can log on to www.saverestaurants.com. And there's a petition they can sign, and that goes to their state rep um, and just light a little bit of fire. And I think that we're very close to getting this on the table. How close are you? We're halfway, I would say. Okay. <laughs> well, let's push it over the edge. If yeah. you guys are listening to this, make sure you go to www. We, need, we, we really need it. Save restaurants. Dot com, dot com, yes. right? Yes. No, dot or, okay, dot com. Um, and I'm going to take this opportunity also to remind you guys that we just had John Hotelling. Um, Hotelling? Yeah, John Hotelling. Hotelling, sorry. Uh, on the show, the lawyer for Thomas Keller, Daniel mm-hmm. Ballad, and all those people that's leading the charge on the business interruption. Right. That's another thing, too. How's that going? I mean, it sounds like they have a case, you know? Oh, really? um, we just actually just published this morning in that episode, if you want to listen to John okay. explain how everything went down and why it's a bunch of BS and why we need to get people to head over to wearebig.org also right. to sign that petition to get these insurance companies to pay out uh, because they do have the money. They have insurance on this insurance. They do. And the people that have insur- that covered that insurance on the insurance have insurance right. so there's money there and right. we need to get it um, and he brings up a lot of interesting points like I don't need to get into it Just listen to the episode yeah I mean that, that, I know that that was a big thing because I think what people have to understand is that as restaurants not just restaurants but businesses in general during this pandemic everybody's trying to open up safely one um, and save their business but if we just had some kind of assistance where there is some kind of a little bit of cushion yeah. where they say, hey, listen, you have X, Y, Z dollars and this can float you, 
you know, for six months, that takes the pressure off. Mm. That takes people trying to open a restaurant and, you know, all like think about bars, people like I yeah, just the I, roller coaster of like, oh, we can open. We're being shut. Oh, we can open. We're being shut. Well, down. yeah, like, you have a lot of restaurants here that have been open and they were like finally getting back and everybody's hopeful. I'm like, oh, my gosh, they're doing so well. Thank God. They're, you know, this is this is a good sign. And then they got a covid case. And then they had to shut down. Do they have to shut down? Uh, that's one of the things that's a lot of controversy. You might as well. I feel like if you don't, you're basically writing your own death sentence. Well, I think it, it's just a risk, yeah. you know, because you really don't know. Say, for example, if I had COVID and I found out five days after and we had this, you might have gotten that and, yeah. you, and you may be asymptomatic and given it to 20 people. Yeah. You know, so I think the chance of just quarantining your entire staff it's the responsible thing to do. It's the responsible thing to do. And also, I think as an owner, what we've been trying to express to our staff is you just can't be safe at work. It has to, you have to be safe outside of work. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are just, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm out of work. I'm at you know, so-and-so's bar or their backyard. I'm going to have drinks. And you know, I know them because we're friends. COVID Pe- doesn't care if you're friends. Pe- people, are too, <laughs> people are too comfortable with that. Yeah. People think that... Oh, yeah, Donald definitely doesn't have COVID. I know him. I've known him for five years. Yeah. That doesn't mean anything. <laughs> yeah. But people have this mentality, this comfort level. And it has, you have to look at everybody like they may have COVID. Yeah. Yeah. I've loved this conversation. Thank you so much. We're going to take one more quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll bust out a true speed round. Uh oh. <laughs> Before we get into the speed round, I have to remind you that Restaurant Unstoppable Network is popping off. At the beginning of August, that's next week. So if you want to take your restaurant unstoppable experience to the next level and join the conversation and ask your questions to my network of experts and leading restaurateurs, head over to restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com on top of being able to access these workshops live and literally be a part of the conversation, you get access to me weekly um a minimum of two hours a week if you're a part of this network you basically you know i just i don't like social media i'll just put it out there i don't really enjoy chatting online and reading hundreds of posts and commenting via text frig all that if you want to hang out with me and you want to be social with me come hang out uh the closest thing to the real thing for me is these zoom video chats or a zoom live chat. Um, and that's how I want to connect with you guys. And I don't want to do it traditionally on social media and on Instagram. I rather have a closed network where I know, like, and trust all the people that are there who are my friends, the people I've been connecting with over the past seven years. I want to bring all my past guests and these people being recommended and you, my most loyal listeners, I want to focus on that 20%. I want to focus on the 20% of the people who love Restaurant Unstoppable the most. Those are the people that matter to me, and I want to do it in a closed environment where we have control over the content, where we have control over the conversation, and I just don't want the noise. I don't want all those jabronis coming in and you know trying to push their political agendas on us. I just want us to talk and learn and, and be together. So if that sounds interesting to you, head over to restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com. Again, that's restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com. So we are back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Focus. Focus. What is your biggest weakness? Impatient. 
What is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're building your team? Um, open-mindedness. What is one big challenge for you today? The biggest challenge today? The biggest challenge today is the future. Yeah. And uh, what are you doing to overcome that challenge? Trying to stay positive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what is one core, sorry, one code of conduct or um, I guess what we call is like a core value, a way, a, way, a way you're teaching your staff to be a better versions of themselves? I think that just comes down to being kind, mm. um, being you know, empathetic to people. I love it. And what is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So something that's common within the four walls of your restaurants, but not common throughout the industry. Hmm, that's a good one. To go above and beyond. I think it's, it, um, I think recognition. Yeah. Recognition of, of everything. Just the, the person, the likes, the dislikes, the, um, connections. See your, see your guests. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Uh, what is one book that's a must read to be a better person or restaurant owner? Oh, that's a good one. Um, The Bible, I guess. <laughs> you know, you're not the first person to recommend that, and I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if I'm a super religious person. I'm not, but I think, I think the reason why I say that is that when you meet somebody that's godly, they have a certain way that they go through life where there's there's no judgment. Mm. You know, I when we had when they had all the riots going on. I had texted some of my cooks. I'm like, guys, please be safe. I know everybody's doing these protests. And one of the girls, she goes to church every Sunday. She said, chef, I'm just going to pray for them. You know, so I think that when you, when you have that connection, and I, I haven't read the Bible in a very long time, but I think when you have that kind of, you know, on your side, it kind of... Faith. It, yeah, it brings, it brings things back to... What's really important here? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's because it's not about the money or the this. It's about treating people the way you want to be treated and with respect. And I think that those are the core values that are in the Bible that really kind of like ground you very quickly. I love it. Uh, what is one thing you feel restaurant tours don't do well enough or often enough? Huh. I think the biggest thing that, well, actually, I'm seeing the shift now, is what we need to do is two things. The disparage between front and back of the house in terms of wages, and now the focus being more on diversity in in restaurants. Yeah, I love that. Oh, name one service you've hired or outsourced to. So this is like an entity, a business entity that does something really well, and you outsource to that company to do the thing for you. So accounting company. Okay. They, Who, keep, they keep me in check. <laughs> Who's your accountant? Uh, his name is Henry. He's the happiest person. Every time I call him, he's just like high on life. I'm like, Henry, why the hell are you so happy? <laughs> I'm miserable. He's like, life is beautiful. The sun is shining. Is he based here in New Orleans? He is. All right. Yeah. Look out. You're about to get some uh, business. <laughs> Henry. Was it Henry? Henry, yeah. All right. What's the name? Do you know the name of his business? It's called ASU. ASU. All yeah. right. Cool. There you go. Shout out, Henry. And uh, same thing, but what's one technology, a, a, a tool that you've outsourced to the, the, the impact your communication, your efficiency, your profitability, anything along those lines? Well, I think it, it comes down to the costing. Okay. You know, our payroll and everything, the, those systems we have in place is just... Even something as you have um, 
your POS system that pull, that pulls all your information up, and that is really important in the sense of tracking your sales, your mm-hmm. menu mix, all those things. I think those things are right there, and I think a lot of people should use them a little bit more. Do you know specifically which tools you're leveraging so we can share those? Well, right now we're using micros, and that gives you a breakdown of every single thing. Okay. You know, people's hours, you know. And does that implement or does that um, work with your, uh, you're talking about HR, does it connect or what's the word? Come on, Eric, think. <laughs> Tell it's, again, it's been a long week. Uh, integration, does it integrate with uh, your HR? A little bit. Okay. A little bit, yeah. And what are you using for HR? We have a person. Okay. Cool. <laughs> awesome. Uh, this is the last question. It's a doozy. Are you ready for it? Uh-huh. If you got the news... You'd be leaving this world tomorrow. Mm-hmm. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. And you're not necessarily dying or anything like that. You right. didn't get COVID. Maybe you're going to Mars. Right. And you can only leave three pieces of wisdom behind. For the good of humanity and for your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Definitely use salt. Use salt. Number <laughs> one. Have fun when you're cooking and eating. Have fun. And share with people you love. And share it with people you love. Nina Compton, I've loved this conversation. Thank you so much. Uh, we wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. That's how we found you. Call somebody out. Yes. <laughs> Who called me out? Diego? Diego Galicia <laughs> called you out. That's why you're here. And he was right to get you on the show. Oh, I, I need to call somebody out? So who's somebody you respect and admire and believe would make a great guess like you made for us? If you were to find out this person was on the show, you would listen to the show because you would want to well, learn Well, it would be my best friend, Michael Parolo. Michael Parolo. Yes. L- look he, out. He is, um, we have a line that we say between each other. We say when keeping real goes wrong because he's just so honest. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what, who's he associated with? What restaurant? Uh, it's called Maculina in Miami. All right. Yeah, Look out. That was Michael. Yes. I'm coming after you. I'd love to get you <laughs> on the show. And how can we connect? Maybe we want to come join your team. Maybe we resonated with what you had to share today and we want to come get mentored by you. What's the best way to get in touch? Call the restaurant. Call the restaurant. <laughs> uh, social handles? Uh, I just do his Instagram, so it's Nina Compton. Okay, beautiful. Nina, thank you so much. I, I'm not sure what episode number this is going to be. Make sure you guys stick around for the closing thoughts. I'll share the episode number. Just head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash whatever the episode number is. We'll have a summary of today's discussion as well as uh, links to any tools or services recommended during today's chat. Nina Compton, thank you so much. Thank you. I can't say it enough. There <laughs> is no question. You are unstoppable. Thank you. Cheers. What did I say? I told you it was a good one. Uh, Nina Compton, thank you so much for coming on the show, for welcoming us, uh, for welcoming us into your restaurant and having a great conversation. Some really great things came out of today's chat. I think the big takeaways for me uh, is this idea of starting where you can and letting cash flow and people determine your growth. And I think she's exactly right. People try to go way too big, way too soon. She also gave us some really great advice on what to consider when going into a hotel space, something that we don't get a lot of people talking about on the show, but a great opportunity there in those hotel spaces. And I just also wanted to draw attention to uh, 
what she wanted to draw attention to, uh, saverestaurants.com. We'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. I said that I did not know what this episode number is going to be. I, I know now it is episode 735. So head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash 735 uh, to get over to saverestaurants.com. And also, we are big. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of people going out there trying to defend us, uh, the restaurant industry, and we need to support them so they can support us. So um, the only other thing I want to remind you guys of before I say goodbye today is that starting next week, holy crap, I can't believe it's next week. That's only three days away. It's crazy. I'm going to be doing live interviews via Zoom and, and to access these live interviews, you need to be a part of restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com. So basically, Restaurant Unstoppable Network is going to be where I'm bringing together uh, the past guests who've had uh, great impacts on me, the experts that have been recommended on the show, the authors um, the, the authors of the books we're reading during the, the monthly book club. Yeah, that's right. If you're a part of Restaurant Unstoppable Network, you also are a part of our book club. You'll get to meet with me for an hour once a week to discuss whatever book we're reading. And also, on top of that, we're going to be archiving courses from these these restaurateurs and these experts. Uh, those workshops will be archived. You're going to be able to literally ask your questions to my network. When you're on the show, you'll be listening afterwards. We're going to be a, doing a Q&A. You're going to be able to ask your questions. And then there's just going to be so much going on. If you want to learn more, head over to restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com. It's where I'm going to be hanging out, and I can't wait to meet you. All right, guys. Until next time, peace out. Okay. Yeah, I know I'm still here, but here's the thing. I want to let you know what our lineup is for the first four workshops. The first workshop, we have Ari Weinswag from Zingerman's. Yes, the Ari Weinswag from Zingerman's to talk about the power of visioning. That's our first workshop during week one of August. The second week of August, we're going to have Ari come back to talk about anarchy in business. We know how much he loves anarchy, but really what that, that conversation is going to be about is uh, human nature in business and leaning into human nature and leveraging human nature in business. Our third workshop is going to be with Rudy Mick from Mick Consulting, a repeat guest. He's been on the show a bunch of times. He's the guy who taught, who taught me uh, you know, the one of the biggest lessons I've learned on the show is that you really just got to paint the picture of perfection for your team. Literally show them what the job done right looks like. Uh, he's going to come to talk to us about core values and how to get your people to live your core values and the impact that can have on your business. And then we're going to be wrapping up with Chris Schultz, who came up through Starbucks. He helped scale Mod Pizza to hundreds of locations across the country, if not thousands. And now he's with Voodoo Donut. And I think I'm not quite sure what we're going to be talking about yet, but I know it's going to be good because he just knows this stuff. So this is a sneak peek of what you can expect with Restaurant Unstoppable Network. If you want to join these conversations, I highly recommend you do it now. Stop, hit pause, head over to restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com because these workshops start next week. Do not miss out. Please be a part of the network. I can't wait to meet you guys. All right, that's it. Peace out.